Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. Beautiful. Let's start with some questions from Patreon, uh, as we always do. If you want your question definitely answered, that's the place to go. Sign up at the first class level or whatever it is. Um, and then you get many other things on top of that one uh, particular perk that I can remember off the top of my head. Uh, but let's see what we have today. Um, James says, do you think Cricket Australia will have taken any notice of Barrett's latest piece about how he's been treated at Australian grounds? And if so, are they likely to do anything meaningful about it? They will certainly have taken notice of it. Whether they will do anything meaningful about it, I don't want to say I'm doubtful. I'm not sure exactly what that would be. Um, a lot of the people that I'm, I'm assuming Barat was um, talking about are probably contract workers who come in and out rather than Cricket Australia employees. I'm, I'm not saying that's the case all the way through. Um, there might be some Cricket Australia employees um, or state board employees on that. It's my, it's my, I've got a bit of a history with this sort of stuff. When Ian O'Brien said that he was, uh, uh, you know, um, given homophobic slurs, um, at the Gabba Cricket Australia, didn't believe him. <laughs> it's very true. On a few occasions, I reported to Cricket Australia that um, I was almost beaten up while recording um, uh, bits outside of grounds. You know, had people come up and abuse us, asked if we could film inside the ground for safety's perspective, even if it was just against the black blank wall. You know, uh, it would have been Channel Nine, I suppose, at that stage. Um, they didn't seem to care <laughs> that much. Um, uh, and uh, there's been, you know, a few other occasions um, where things like this have happened before, and I just don't think they have. 
adequately um, come to it. So for those who don't know, Barrett was talking about the racial treatment he's had inside of grounds. He was talking about Australian society more than just cricket grounds, but certainly talking about cricket grounds in specific, uh, you know, specifically in a few different um, moments there. But yeah, uh, so from that point of view, I feel like things have been told to Cricket Australia before and they don't really care. I feel this is a different Cricket Australia to the one that I was probably more involved with, which is more the James Sutherland Cricket Australia, um, which... You know, I'm not going to get into the whole politics of how uh, Australian cricket is run behind the scenes, but it did feel at times that that was a very uh, harsh world to live in. I felt sorry for a lot of the Cricket Australia employees having to deal with that. And when you did go to them with genuine concerns, of which I did on several different occasions, uh, I was mostly either laughed at or ignored. Perhaps things are a little bit different with the new Cricket Australia, but I'm not sure how much they could do. Um, but I thought Barrett's piece was wonderful. If you haven't read it, I retweeted a couple of days ago. I'm sure Barrett's got it pinned or near the top of his profile. He doesn't tweet that much anyway. Um, and, you know, it might be something that we talk, uh, talk to him about on the next episode uh, when uh, in a few days' time anyway. Uh, all right, what else we got here? Renee says, uh, last time you said something about how India um, scouted uh, Mukesh Singh from nowhere since he hadn't played in the IPL. Uh, he's actually a proper Red Bull bowler tearing up in first-class cricket for the last couple of years. Um, but my question, yeah, I don't think I said that. I think there was a question um, about that, uh, about the fact that he hadn't hadn't played anywhere there. But my question is... Um, but my question is, isn't scouting some unknown talent and putting Australia into the national team primitive? Isn't, uh, isn't that IPL team's jobs? Should IPL teams be more involved with local cricket? Um, no, no, I don't think so. I'm trying to think of some players of recent times. Uh, you know, we've had some players go straight into the IPL, not even just Indian players, right? Like overseas players. Um, uh, is a, uh, the, the, the scene bowler from Sri Lanka uh, with the Malinga action. Patharana, is it? I've forgotten his name. Um, so we've seen players come from nowhere, um, you know, in that in that environment uh, before in the IPL. We've seen it in other T20 leagues. Harris Ralph um, uh, sort of, uh, in some ways, did he play Big Bash before he played uh, um, PSL or certainly wasn't a, a standout PSL star at that stage. So we have seen players do that, but it should work in both ways. If you're a really good scouting department, and you're out there and you've got really good metrics um, and you find a player and you think that it's time to get them in, then certainly, especially when it comes to bowlers, I think bowlers have a limited life cycle, especially faster bowlers, in that you kind of want them in as soon as they're ready um, and then they get discarded the minute they look like they've lost half a yard or you know, uh, you know, injuries catch up to them or whatever that may be. I don't, so I think you want to be in a situation where when the minute they're ready, they're ready, you know, uh, they must go from bowling wides. This is a slightly different kind of situation, but if you look at um, Jamie Overton, a very similar situation from a, from a scouting point of view that Surrey didn't think he was ready for test cricket when he was big for test cricket, but England were like, but we need this kind of bowler. And if he is ready, we're going to, we're going to be able to bring him in. Um, I don't, I don't see that as, as a problem from a national team or anything else. The only one thing I would say is that I still think, and I was listening to the Sri Lanka 99.94 podcast, and they were talking about, and Estelle was talking about players being picked on potential and how she, you know, she had no problem with, with that. But after a while, um, you know, you have to prove it, which is, which is very fair. I think there is a certain amount of people 
in cricket. And it's a small movement of us <laughs> who, who probably think a little bit more along the lines of you shouldn't be picking players based on potential. You should be picking players on whether they can do the job now. Um, or uh, you, you, if you are picking them early, you're not picking them on potential. What you are actually doing is saying this player is good enough to play, but now they're going to have to learn something. And unfortunately, the only place that we can teach them is at the highest level. So now I've got no problem with international teams. If, if that's what they think, if, you know, if, if, if Jasper Boomerah comes through or AB de Villiers comes through um, and you're like, well, this person could play you know, for 14 years in the international team. But what we really need to do now is fast track their development. And if they're off playing first class cricket, they may not be able to develop in the same way or, or you know, in other format, uh, franchise leagues or whatever that may be. Um, and we want to get them in. And this is the role that we want to do. So I, I've got no problem with that. And I like, I think that's a, that's a good way of doing it. I think the bad way of doing it is perhaps more the Pakistan way of doing it of, you know, recent times where it's like, oh, we're losing. Let's just pick a bunch of teenagers or, you know, the Australian thing of, oh, we need another, you know, once in a generation player. That's the bad way of picking young players. But not every player that you pick young has to be that kind of player. Um, and, and the other good thing about, I think, picking a young a player uh, you go to a sort of the Matt Renshaw perhaps um, argument of this is if you do pick a player really early on and you know that they are an above average talent, very, very quickly, whether it be Matt Renshaw, Ollie Pope, Zach Crawley, you're going to see exactly what they need to work on for the next 10 years. And with more professional environments, what you have the ability to do, hopefully, is pick Zach Crawley, bring him into the side, start to play him and go, oh, okay, well, we, this is why we think he will work in test cricket, but this is why he currently won't work in test cricket. Now can we can we um, upgrade that? Can we help him with his skills and, and everything else? Um, and that is, uh, it, I mean, that's an, if, as long as everyone is on board and understands that and the player is even part of it. And it's like, look, you might play 10 test matches and then go off. But after that 10 test matches, we're going to know so much more information about you. The jump, I, I remember the... I'm, all over the place with my analogies here. But I do remember the story about Hilton Cartwright. Hilton Cartwright was selected, and I forget which Australian selection committee was in charge when they selected him. And I had seen him bowl a, a bit. Um, I think I'd seen an A game he played in or, you know, some sort of lower level. Maybe it was a Shield game I was watching. And I'd seen him play a little bit in uh, a couple of T20 games, I think, as well. And the commentators, sorry, not the commentators, the selectors were talking about how he put on this yard of pace. And this myth sort of came about that Hilton Cartwright, he could bat at number six, um, and he was now bowling 130, 135, 140 k's an hour. Comes into the Australian team, bowls about, what, 125 k's an hour, whatever it was. I mean, he wasn't quick. He did not put on any extra pace and, and hadn't done that. That's that kind of more, you know, hoping that this person is a missing link. That should be different to what we see in cricket in the next few years. I mean, that what was that now? Seven, eight years ago, whenever Hilton Cartwright played. The next step should be, you should know exactly what pace they have because you should be able to track them in the nets. You should be able to track them um, in domestic cricket and everything else. Um, you should understand exactly what these players can do. So then if you're, you should be making a more educated um, uh, selection on someone like Mukesh uh, is the way I would put that. Surf says, any ideas on how why South Africa's batting and bowling seems to have gone off the rails in Australia? Well, the batting wasn't on the rails. I think it, it, it's really interesting because I've been asked these questions about South Africa so many times in the last couple of weeks. Oh, what happened to South Africa's batting? Well, it's been like this for like years. They've really been struggling with the bat for a very long time now. 
And if anyone thought they were going to turn up and make runs, then they just hadn't been paying attention. The bowling's a little bit different, but you know, you go to Australia, you do bowl on, you know, flatter pitches, your batting batters don't make any runs, you're bowling, you know, back to back innings um, quite often. Uh, the Australian batters are brilliant at churning out big, big scores and, you know, against even quality bowling lineups. Um, and so that's what South Africa has come across. And anyone who thought they were going to be anything more than this, I, the only thing I thought is they might rip through Australia a couple more times with the ball. That's the only difference but I still thought Australia would win the series absolutely easily um so I, I feel that a lot of people asking these questions about South Africa weren't watching them play in England where they were also atrocious their bowling attack um probably held up a little bit better in England um but then again England weren't making the big sort of runs at that in, in that series that probably put um them uh, South Africa out of the game as much as far as the general decline in test performances um I can't, I can't, if South Africa were better at test cricket now, they wouldn't be playing more test matches in the FTP than they are now. That's not how these things go. They're, they're not um, directly linked in the way that I think some people think they are. Last five years, South Africa have won less than 50% of their test matches. Uh, they're a 50-50 team. Um, and, and, you know, against the better teams, they're worse than that. Their batters are averaging... <laughs> the batters are averaging 25 and a half runs per wicket, which is marginally up on the West Indies, slightly down on Zimbabwe. Tells you where South Africa is as a team. Um, I, look, I'll be doing something about their batting um, shortly. I, I, I find the whole thing really interesting that they can't make any runs and they keep picking extra bowlers. It's a really, really interesting strategy, which you would say looking at this record is not working. <laughs> um, uh, James says, if if India and India is a modern Australian cricket's bogeyman, uh, why doesn't cricket Australia do more to expose or even immerse their players in Indian conditions? They actually did do a lot of preparation before the 2016 tour. I would say it's almost as much as they've done. Maybe 2019 Ashes was the only other one where I've literally seen them try and do as much possible before that series. Um, so I, I, like, I like that part of it. But... Uh, the other part you're saying is an academy or a training center. I'm not sure if they can have an academy or a training center in India. I'm not sure the BCCI would allow that. I'm not sure how that works. It's, it's not that they couldn't start one, but you know how would that uh, how would that um, affect the relationship with the BCCI? But I must have written in 2007 that if I was Australia, I would have opened an academy in um, Sri Lanka. They have used the ICC Academy at times. The problem with the ICC Academy is it's too hot to train there. Um, it's you know ridiculous um, to be there. Um, also, the ICC don't run that academy. It's run by uh, you know personal people. You don't you're not quite as in charge of the, it w as you should be, especially if it's your own. I would have opened a, a, an academy in Sri Lanka years ago and done it that way. And it's not just about playing in India. It really is just about rounding your players out. Sri Lanka, ball spins massively. You could have some more Indian wickets dropped in as well. Um, uh, you know, so yes, I, I would say that, you know, that, that certainly with Australia, if they, so Australia, I don't know when this was, it's about five years ago, the Australian team got, well, Australian setup 
got absolutely obsessed by India, not just winning there, but in the fact that they had to be the smartest team in the world to beat India because India was going to have more money and was going to have more player resources. I look on five years and I'm not sure what they've done from that argument. They haven't really been, you could argue outside of that sort of 80s to 90s um, uh, academy period. I'm not sure that Australian cricket has ever been that much smarter than other places. It's had some natural advantages and had some of the best cricketers in the world, but I'm not sure it's ever been smarter. And it was really interesting that that was what they were talking about doing. And then after that, I would say they kind of took a step back. So yeah, I think you're right, James. But I, I've been talking about that for a long time. And I kind of feel like that is the next step of what Australia, India and England should be doing to ensure that they are the best teams in the world for long periods of time. Um, I'm sure Cricket Island would allow India to open a um, academy there. I think the West Indies is another interesting place um, to open an academy um, uh, as well. And as I said, Sri Lanka is another perfect example of a, of a place where you could do that. You could have, you know, help the local uh, cricket teams there as well. Um, but uh, it doesn't seem to be what anyone is uh, that worried about at the moment. Uh, Renee says, is the pace playing pandemic over? Other than the South African question, I think this is the one I get the, the second most. Uh, we saw that in England this summer with high scoring tests. We actually saw a lot of low scoring tests in England this summer. Um, Australia has once again going back to being high scoring. Has it for South Africa and the West Indies? Um, and of course, Pakistan. Pakistan's the, the outlier, of course. Uh, that is the place where we've seen the most consistent high, high scores uh, from home and away teams. Um, this was the highest year since 2017, I think, or maybe it was 2016. Uh, and the and I think the average, oh, I'm talking about 2022, and I think the average was still under 30. Whether it's the end of the pace playing pandemic or not, I'm not sure. But if it's under 30, uh, it's still in favour of bowlers. I don't, you know, you, I, I don't think you can um, explain that, that, that average away um, in any other way other than the fact that the bowlers are still massively on top. Uh, but, it does feel like it's trending upwards, but it could just be that we're playing more tests in Pakistan. Bloody Bogger says, uh, what are the best five, uh, top five batting lineups ever on the field? Um, ignoring number six, wicketkeeper batter. Well, number seven would be wicketkeeper batter. Um, top five. So I did have a bit of a think about this. And I suppose this is a really, really interesting question that might end up being a, an entire Western, entire video series. because. There, I don't think Viv Richards and Brian Lara ever play at this in the same test match. I think that's right. I'm trying to do this off my head, sorry. Um, but my first thought was if you had Gray, uh, Haynes, Greenwich, uh, Richardson, Richards, Lara, that would be the strongest top five ever. But by the time Lara plays with Richards and even Richardson and Haynes and Greenwich, they're all on the slide, right? And so what you're really looking for is almost like a Fab Four type situation or Fab Five type situation, a bit more like what you have with India, where you have a bunch of players who are all kind of reaching their peaks at a similar age curve. Um, so the Indian team sort of comes uh, more naturally to my mind. Then what have you got with, um, I'm trying to think what you have with sort of a peak Australian lineup, what would that be? That would be Langer, Hayden, Ponting, Martin, do you get the back end of Steve Waugh on any of that? I suppose you do, but again, maybe um, uh, maybe he's not quite um, at the at the best of his game. Maybe even 
if you look at just batting averages, I wonder where Simon Kadic would, uh, I, did he bat at five or six? I'd have to go back and check that one as well. But um, so the, the age curves there are a little bit better because you have a lot of guys in that sort of late 20s, early 30s period, all hitting their peaks around the, a similar time. Um, so that's quite interesting. Langer brings that one down a little bit, but I don't think Langer averaged that much less than than Greenwich or Haynes did um, from that perspective. I was thinking there must be an England one where you had Hobbs and Sutcliffe and Hammond. And then you would have had, I'm trying to think who the four or five was. That was the Les Ames period as well. But if you have that as your top three, and then you would have another period in the 50s of England, then you have uh, Walcott, Worrell, uh, Weeks, Sobers when he batted five. Um, maybe top openers aren't quite as strong there. Um, but yeah, I think the Indian team off the top of my head has a very, very good um, chance of doing that. You'd have to look for your individual years there. And I'm trying to think, because South Africa probably, to South Africa, would you have a Smith, Kirsten, Callis? I'm not sure they have a second opener in South Africa of that period, unless I'm just forgetting a name, because you kind of have Alviro P- Peterson for a little while. Whether there's a, whether there's sort of a collection of um, good good enough players across that. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else, any other teams I'm missing. I feel like there should be a Bradman era. I was thinking about 1942. Six to 1948, but I think Keith Miller batted four a lot there. And while he was a fantastic player, I'm not sure he quite, you know, he would certainly bring down the averages if you're looking at pure averages. Um, but there must be a there must be a Barnes, Harvey, Bradman top five. Um, uh, the other opener was re- uh, was quite good as well. So there was certainly a couple of periods in there where there would be. Um, where there would be some good ones. But and then you'd have to... So then your next question is, how many times did that top five play together? And how much you're actually, you know, uh, you know, how much credit you give, you know, a team that ha- happened to have a one-off where two generations overlapped. Um, is that better than having another, you know, another one where the players weren't quite as good, but they played together like 40 times? 40 is probably unrealistic, maybe 25 times or something like that. It's a really good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer for you, but the uh, the Indian one just m- makes a lot more sense to me from an age perspective. Um, and I do feel there's a really good late 1920s England one. And the West Indies, I think you just have to try and gerrymander the er- eras a little bit to see um, if you can get the right players in at the right time for the West Indies. But I feel like there should be a really good lineup of the West Indies that has a really strong four in it. Because if you had Viv Richards at three, Richie Richardson, peak Richie Richardson at four, and then who would be, who would have been the number five for that, that sort of that run. Um, But great question, which I might, you know, make a video on if I can. Uh, Amanon says, who is statistically the winningest cricket player uh, by percentage and or total wins of all time? Oh, I don't know that. By total wins, um, it would probably be uh, Ricky Ponting, I would have thought, off the top of my head. Um, percentage, uh, I, I mean, again, it depends on how low you go. It used to be Tim Bresden, didn't it? <laughs> First part of his career. Um, uh, uh, but I no, sorry, I haven't had a chance to have a look at that, of which players had the most wins. But I, I think Ricky Ponting uh, is the player who's, He's played in the most wins, although uh, 
uh, perhaps um, Tendulkar or Jimmy Anderson have gone past him. Um, but I've got a I've got a memory that that it was Ponting um, and win percentage again. You know, in Ponting kind of plays from what ninety six to two thousand and fourteen. Um, you know, go back statistically, Australia didn't lose very often um, in that period. Uh, Renee says, how good was Booby in test matches? He averaged 26 with the ball in the pre-pace pandemic era. Uh, played his last t- uh, uh, test literally as that era began, not to mention his batting, which was more useful in tests than my ball cricket. Look, I was a huge fan of, of Booby. I think the we've seen it with um, Muhammad Abbas, um, Stuart Clark, you know, a few of those really highly skillful bowlers. They just at the first sign of they may not be able to bowl everywhere, they seem to disappear in test cricket. I think when you are that highly skilled, uh, having seen Boovie play, I still think he's better with the red ball than he is with the white ball. Whether he was going to be effective all the way through in international cricket over a long period of time would have been really interesting. Um, but I personally thought he was a fantastic bowler. I think if you go back to that era, I probably wrote about five pieces on his on his Test match bowling. Um, and and you're right about his batting. I think his batting was he he, he got called an all rounder when he came in. He's not an all rounder, is he? But he was very hard to get out, and he was like very hard to get out, out in a way with more batting skill than say Ishant Sharma or Matthew Hoggard. Right? He was very he was very hard to get out in a in a technically correct sort of repeatable way where he could also make some runs as well. Um, I saw him play a good couple of innings. It was one against Australia and one against England, I want to say, off the top of my head. Um, look, I, I'm biased. You know, if you ask me about Boovie, I'm going to tell you he's great. Um, I think he's a fantastic cricketer. I think he's incredibly underrated um, in global cricket, but especially by Indian fans. Um, you know, just a highly, highly skillful uh, player. Um and I think he should have played more Test cricket than he has, but I can also understand why. Like you know, at the same period, India had a lot of fast bowlers to pick from, and faster fast bowlers. And generally, if you pick the faster or the taller bowler in Test cricket, that seems to be the uh, de facto rule. Will says a few weeks ago, you answered a question about how batters decline as they age and how they still make big scores on occasion, but consistency is gone. Do you think that's the case of Warner? Yeah, I, I don't think Warner has the consistency now he did in these kind of peak Warner years. We saw him get dropped by the Sunrisers in the IPL, come back and have a great World Cup. And be, Was he player of the tournament when Australia won the World Cup? I think he was. And then the following uh, World Cup didn't make any runs again. I know that's T20 and not Test cricket. Um, but that's kind of more of what I would expect at his age of, of um, you know, he might be able to get it together for five, six, seven, eight, nine games in a row, then have a little period where it drops off a little bit again. And in test cricket, uh, you, the pattern will be different because test cricket is played differently than, you know, one days and T20s. Um, but the, the very basic point that you're making, you know, I always go back to the Ricky Ponting double hundred uh, towards the end and maybe even Yunus Khan's um, last tour to England. I think it was his last tour. Well, it must be his last tour to England. Um, uh, you know, a, they don't forget those basic skills and if things go right for them. I think there's a really good story about Michael Jordan playing. So I saw Michael Jordan's last 40-point game, but I think Michael Jordan's last 50-point game, which I think they were both against the Nets, if I remember correctly. Michael Jordan's last 50-point uh, game, the game before that, um, he had, he'd been caught, pulled out of the game early and it was the first... He'd broken the longest streak, I think, in, in NBA history, or certainly one of the longest streaks of double points scoring. He got eight points in this game, playing for the Washington Wizards. 
and was pulled out. And then the next game, he gets 50. And when his coach sort of said, you know, you're on fire today. And he said, yeah, the player I was playing on <clears throat> told me that he had um, a back injury. And he's just like, well, I'm just going to go at this guy the whole game then and, and exploit that. Older players pick up those sorts of things, uh, you know, quicker than younger players do. Uh, you know, reading a bowler, uh, reading a field, reading a game situation. The ability to repeat the high scoring that Michael Jordan had always, already had, had always had, obviously wasn't there anymore because he just broke his streak and not played and not scored, ten, um, you know, over 10 points. But then the next game, he could still get to 51. He wasn't going to score the same amount of points as he had um, as a younger person for the Chicago Bulls, but he was still able to occasionally have those nights. But when he had those nights, there was something very specific about it. And uh, and I think that, you know, with Warner on those sort of hard Australian pitches, it's what his batting is absolutely made for. If But I think we no one's expecting Warner to go away from home and average consistently over 35 for, let's say, three series in a row anymore, which he's, he's, he's never been a great player overseas. But he's I think that's where you're really going to see the bigger problems with him coming ahead. He's still a really good player. He's a really interesting one of... It was a couple of years ago, people, there was a lot of talk about dropping Warner and, and moving on from Warner. He's so, you know, now with Usman Khawaja, they actually have another opener. But for the longest time, he's just so much better than any any of the other options that they've had at the top. Um, so I don't think they're going to move on from it. He's also, he's, I was going to say he's very fit. There are parts of his body that I think are falling apart, but he's still a very fast runner between wickets and everything else. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see what he does over the next couple of years because he does think very methodically about when he, how he prepares, um, how he gets the most out of himself. You know, we think of him as the sort of the young player who came through, but he's a guy who builds his innings on, on well, in test cricket on running twos and threes and in T20 and one day cricket on stealing singles early on. Th that is, he's already made one move in his career. Will he make another move late in, at, you know, at this sort of part of his career? Um, you know, perhaps he doesn't, he won't run as hard. Maybe he'll look for some other advantage. Um, you know, the sort of the old Justin Langer of slash up a couple of fours early on, um, get myself away, and then my reputation will help from then on in. Aditya says, uh, how good do you think the current Australian test team is? And... Um, uh, And I've read a few articles in the past few days about this team being on the cusp of greatness. Um, it's a fantastic bowling lineup, like even the backups. Uh, and if you put Cameron Green into that, it should be a lot stronger as well. Um, I think in the last five years, in fact, I've got it right in front of me, so I don't need to even... Uh, <laughs> they've been winning two tests for every uh, one loss or draw. Um, that's a pretty fantastic record over, what's that, over 41 matches. I do think they've played a lot more at home. Uh, for a, like a, I, I, I'd have to go through the record to see. Um, I want to see see them win a lot away from home against you know uh, teams that are better at home. I'd like to see them you know beat you know uh, maybe take a couple of tests off India um, or at least a test off India and be pushing for another one. Um, you know they should have won the last Ashes. They didn't win the last Ashes. Ended up drawing that series. Um, uh, you know, so from that perspective, I kind of, I kind of want to see them be that as good as they have been in Australia away from home. But we also weren't that far away from you know them losing at home to to India as well. So I can't see how they're on the, uh, you know, I can't see how they're that close to greatness. 
but they're obviously um, a very, very good team. But I, I maybe I'd need it for another extra two years. There's just a couple of players that I'm not sure are quite on that level at the moment. Um, but if you have a bowling lineup like this that should travel, um, you should be a fantastic team. And I think they've kind of proved that so far. But whether they're at that next level, I don't buy it, but um, I just probably just want to see more of it away from home. Nort says, um, love to hear your thoughts on European Cricket League. I find the spectrum of quality from outstanding to egregious somewhat hypnotic. <laughs> Is there some room um, interest in the media land for more audio video content than Champions Club Cricket and other grassroots initiative? Yeah, I mean, I suppose we had great cricketer, but that's kind of, I, I, <laughs> it's kind of something uh, slightly different. Yeah, I mean, European Cricket, I I don't watch a lot of it, but I like the clips as they come through. I actually like the fact that now we're in a world that you can be playing a club game and do something embarrassing and your friends can put it up on Facebook and the world can see it. I, I love that element. And it's something, I think I talked about this on Pablo Torre's um, uh, podcast on, on ESPN of, you know, if you play if you play a rec basketball game, probably no one's recording it. You know, if you play, you know, a, a low quality football game, probably no one's recording it. We actually... Cricket is getting recorded at this massive level. And it's not just, and the European League were maybe not the forefront of that, but they certainly got that first wave of it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can understand. I, I just like it when things go wrong. I almost never watch the good cricket side of things on it. Um, as far as um, as far as in the media, I, I, I'll say the same thing I say about everything in the media. There's, there's no reason why if you do something popular. There are so many people in the world. Anyone who's ever played club cricket, will tell you that there is a vast majority of people who play club cricket every week, every, you know, two times in, in midweek competitions, whatever that may be, who could not tell you, I was going to say, could not tell you who the vice captain of their national team was, but I suppose half the time, no one knows who those are now, um, but couldn't tell you that much about the national team. Don't watch international cricket at all, but absolutely love cricket. So I do think there is a huge market of that. We see, um, what, I forget the name. It was a Pitch Vision, the coaching app. Um, you know, you even see things like We Cricket, right? You know, the the YouTube channel. Um, and I do think I, I think that cricket hasn't really got to that level. And you know, someone who does follow basketball, you, there's so many people who you know have all these different basketball coaching things and um, all these other things. And I do think in cricket, I've seen people try it, but maybe never quite commit to it fully. Um, and, and maybe it's just too hard to market. But yes, I do think um, that that could work. Uh, Manon says, uh, we have the U.S. Intercollegiate Nationals in Houston sometime in March this year. I was wondering if you ever explored this side of cricket in the U.S. I mean, I'm aware of it. I know a lot about college sports, of course. Um, I've had friends who went over and played college basketball and, um, and, and you know, did things like that. So uh, I'm very aware of that side of, of American sports and I've been to college um, uh, sports events occasionally. Um, I've even been to junior college sports events. But... Um, I, I know that the cricket exists, but it needs to get a lot bigger for for me to be able to pay any attention. I just started looking at minor league cricket, man. Um, I'm going to struggle. I'm going to struggle to go to the college level of American basketball, American cricket as well. Uh, Josh says Henry Eccles is a two track test bully. When at Hagley Oval, base and reserve, he has um, 1,304 runs, averaging 56. At Eden Park, he got 145, but everywhere else, um, he's only scored 1,202. Uh, but my question to you is, are these statistics actually interesting? Do I have too much time on my hands? I think it, I, I did something recently on um, uh, Shreya Iyer about how he has a phenomenal average in Mumbai 
and doesn't in other places and how it meant that he wasn't as well tested in other places. It doesn't necessarily mean that um, he can't play because clearly he could, but I think he was averaging like 45 outside of Mumbai and 62 or something in, in Mumbai. That's a first class cricket. This is a little bit different because you're talking about test cricket, but Henry Nichols's record is just absolutely insanity. Like for, one of the things was, I figured by now he would have played um, a lot more uh, matches outside of New Zealand because he's what thirty-one. He's played one hundred and ten first-class games. I, I would have thought he would have played a lot more matches outside of New Zealand so that I could see if this was just you know randomness of playing a few test matches at home and. Unfortunately, he hasn't played more than two first-class matches outside of New Zealand at any ground. So I think there's um, Vijay Wada. He played two first-class games in 2017, I think, a national stadium in Karachi. Um, and, and then you've got um, Zimbabwe and UAE. So he's played two at a few places. All right. So I can't really answer that question for you. What I can say is... You don't even have to go that particularly deep on him to see how weird um, things are uh, in his particular career. I, I think I've written about this. I might have done it on one of the videos as well. He's had a spectacularly weird career so far. Um, for, for instance, he averages 48 at home and he averages 21 away. And so straight away, you're just like, oh, well, he can't play away. But if you add his neutral tests away from home, in four neutral tests, he averages 49. So when he's been in the UAE or, you know, one of those might have been the um, the test match against England, uh, India in England as well. It's just everything's kind of weird. It never makes any sense. At one stage, he was one of the best players of offspin going around and then he was the absolute worst. Um, but I did find something else really, really cool about Henry Nichols. I'm trying to find the ground. Seddon Park. So you've talked about uh, Hagley Oval, uh, Basin Reserve, um, and then you talked about Eden Park. So he's made runs at all those, although I think he failed in his other match at Eden Park. But Hagley Oval and Basin Reserve certainly averages over 50 at both of those venues in first-class cricket. Uh, but then you've got Seddon Park and Hamilton. He's played eight games there, and he averages 12 and a half. You, the more you look at Henry Nichols' numbers – the more you, none of it makes any sense. And I still kind of back him, but it. I understand. I, this is the second show in a row. I reckon we've had a Henry Nichols question. He's really become um, something else. So I, I'm probably going to have to do a whole video on Henry Nichols. And I'm going to be honest, I've never been happier. All right, last one for Patreon. Christopher says, you regularly say about there being money made in test cricket. Uh, would this be to you uh, for a better World Test Championship or would you be looking at a franchise league? Either of those things, you can make money. A proper World Test Championship where you sold the rights, franchise league where you sold the rights beforehand, uh, you would make money on test cricket. That is correct. Uh, we'll leave uh, Patreon um, questions here. Thank you to Christopher and everyone else who asked their questions. Uh, I'm going to take a small break. Uh, and while I have this break, I will go through the questions uh, live in the YouTube chat. Hi, I'm Nikesh Raghani, commentator and host of the India on 99.94 podcast. Several times each week, my co-host Sarah Waris and I 
will be bringing you the very best in Indian cricket chat. Whether we're discussing the legend of Julan Goswami, KL Rahul's strike rate, the men's T20 death bowling woes, or the latest controversy involving the BCCI, we've got you covered. You can listen and subscribe via your usual podcast provider. Just search for India on 99.94. You can watch us via YouTube and you can download the 99.94 app. If you love Indian cricket, then join our conversation. All right, let's get to the chat room. Call it the chat room, the comment sidebar. I'm not sure. Uh, Keshu of, uh, where is he here? Keshu says, Simon Dool asked on commentary whether these flat roads are being made uh, on Baba Azam, say, for his own runs or someone above him. Uh, do you think batting captains ever do this kind of thing? The only batting captain I could think of who massively changed the pitches made them for the worse, uh, which was Faf Duplessis, <laughs> who, who literally told the South African curators to make sure that the wickets were as spicy as possible because his batters could handle it and he didn't think the opposition players could. Um, no, but I mean, Baba Azam is not... <laughs> I, mean, I think it's a ludicrous suggestion. Um, I mean, Simon Dool could know something and, and that's different. If it's just off the top of his head, I don't think it's true. Um, uh, it's a really, really interesting one. I think I, um, I might have had it in the Pakistan um, video I've done, so you can go and have a look at that. They had a couple of wickets that were a little bit spicy. They then had some wickets that were really, really flat. Um, I think, you know, we probably had a couple that are absolutely incredibly flat and a couple that are not quite so bad. Um, but because you put them all together, they look bad. But if you do go back in the history of Pakistan cricket, and their pitches were like this. They had one of the higher draw rates um, before um, the uh, the ban. Oh, banning is not the right word, is it? Before the um, uh, having to play overseas, um, having to play at neutral venues thing happened. So that is one thing I think. And this is this is one thing we've kind of forgotten. When I started writing about cricket in two thousand and seven, the biggest problem was the fact that we had these incredibly flat batting pitches and if you look at the next 10 years we basically had some of the best batting feats of all time um you know people just putting up ridiculous batting numbers uh and then the last five years it's gone back to something quite different and it's almost like pakistan have picked up in you know 2009 2010 um period and is still producing pitches like that but i'd be i would personally be very very shocked if baba azam had a that much power B, was making that call, um, and C, was still consistently doing it when it hadn't been working. <laughs> I just, I don't see how that is the case, um, but, I, but I could be wrong there, but I really doubt I am. Um, Satya says, uh, what are the qualities that make a good power play spinner? So this is, the first one is being able to bowl with a new white ball. Um, I haven't played that much cricket with white ball, but I am a spinner. And the first time I played in like a charity game or something and, and captain said, oh, you know, bowl in the power play and they threw in the ball. And I couldn't get out of my fingers. And, you know, you've heard uh, players like Graham Swan, who was the, was an Australian leg spinner. I was doing some, you know, consultancy for one of the big bash teams and they were desperate, uh, you know, to do something different. I was like, your leg spinner profiles as someone who could bowl in the power play, give him the ball in the power play. And they tried it in the nets and he just couldn't get it out of his fingers. So it just, if you've ever um, picked up a, a red ball and a white ball, you'll just feel that it's, it's about the lacquer and the fact that one is painted and one is dyed. They just feel really different in your fingers. And so I think that's, that's a big difference um, uh, for one thing. Then I think what you need is some sort of... Um, 
you need to be someone who relies a little bit on skid. So, you know, someone, you, 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 you either want to be able to occasionally make the ball slide, which is one way of doing it, or you want to be a bowler who probably gets that uh, as a more natural um, side of things, because what you really want is the ball to hit the, um, uh, the shiny side and skid low. And if you're a spinner who doesn't get that sort of skid, at any stage, the white ball's probably not going to get enough to give you um, something else. So what you really want is that ability because when the seam is new and when the ball is new, if it hits the seam, it will really it can really stop. And if it hits the um, shiny side or the shiny ball, it's all shiny at that stage, um, it can really slip through. So you're creating like almost like a natural uh, slower ball, faster ball variation, but by just bowling your, your best ball. Um, and I think the other one that I have noticed, and um, this is from having conversations with people like Samuel Badri um, and Michael Beer, so two of the better bowlers to do it. I'm trying to think of who else. I think I spoke to Tom Cooper about it once when he did it a lot as well. Um, and there is another more major spinner who I've talked to about it, who now is, their name has, has gone out of my head. Um, they said that they had to do a lot more planning and thinking. In the middle overs, you kind of play, as a spinner, you play to your strengths. You've got the five fielders out and you can do that. Uh, whereas in the uh, early overs, uh, you can't play to your strengths because you can only put two fielders out. So you might, you might be using your overall strength, but you have to really dictate what where that player is going to try and hit the ball and try and get them to hit it towards these sweepers um, if they're that kind of player or cramp them up in the other way so that they, they're trying to pierce the uh, field on the other side. Uh, you know, But um, that's not the natural way that they normally uh, go about that. Uh, Michael Beer is certainly someone who watched an incredible amount of video. Um, and so I do think that is a big part of it as well. But it's it's a really interesting one. So Michael Beer, oh my God, I forgot why he did it. Samuel Badri started doing it because he was playing for a team that didn't have good um, seam bowlers. I can't remember if it was in first class cricket or even in his club cricket. And then it was a natural thing um, for him to do after that. Uh, and then we've seen, you, then you see, I, I think the more interesting ones are maybe the people like Ashwin who have the ability to do it and then not do it because it does feel like a very specialist kind of bowling. Like I watched Washington Sundar bowl and I really like him when he bowls in the power play. Outside of the power play, sometimes I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure um, he's quite at that level. It's, so it's, it's very interesting. But the other thing is it's very hard to get good at it because obviously at almost all levels of cricket, the seam bowlers take um, the new ball, but also in training, and this was someone I did talk to. I wonder if that was Tom Cooper who told me that, or if it was someone else. But at training, it, when the spinner, if you're a spinner and you ask for the new ball, quite often you're just not given the new ball unless you're already bowling with the new ball. So it's very hard to get good at it unless you're doing it at a lower level um, already. Um, so it's, yeah, a bit bizarre from that perspective. Afahan said, uh, as the word goat has lost its meaning, uh, who according to you is the goat of, of cricket? Um, yeah, I saw someone say today uh, on Twitter in, in a conversation that um, uh, that so-and-so was the goat of their generation. I was like, well, it means greatest of all time. <laughs> so it does, you know, it does end up being used kind of everywhere um, for everything at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah. My, my son loves that phrase, by the way. I don't know why. He loves the fact that the best athlete in the world is called a goat. Um, uh, Don Bradman. Yeah, I, 
I saw it must have gone viral. Some sort of uh, Twitter thing went viral about you know who's the greatest uh, player uh, you know in their sport of all time. And I saw someone compare, uh, say, Bradman, and then they had um, Khan, the squash player, and then they had Chamberlain, the basketballer. And, and squash, I don't know as much about, but I think um, you know his record certainly uh, is fantastic from the, from the little bits that I've looked at it before. Will Chamberlain, I thought was really interesting because he had obviously a year where he averaged 50 uh, with points. But in order for him to, and, and he's no, he's in very few of the, if you look at the top, you know, uh, basketball players of all time, he's very rarely in the top five. In fact, he wasn't even considered the best player of his era. He sort of, you know, Bill Russell was probably considered at, at the same level of Will Chamberlain, if not slightly above. But if you think about it purely from a mathematical point of view, Chamberlain had I see a season where he averaged 50 points and a couple where I think he averaged in the 40s. Um, when at that stage, 30 was thought to be, you know, if you were averaging 30, you were thought to be a great scorer. Bradman uh, was 40% better than the next best players in his era um, over his entire career. It's just a different level and it's really hard to be able to compare Sachin Tendulkar having this, what, Sachin Tendulkar has such a wild career because he basically played in one of the harder eras to score runs and then one of the easiest eras to score runs. And so he's ended up with this huge, you know, long career um, from that perspective. And um, and so his numbers probably look worse from the beginning of his career and better at the end of his career. And, and, you, and he had to play home in a way. He had to do it under, you know, uh, the harshest light of, of Indian fans and, and everything else. But Bradman still averaged 40% better than the next best batter did in his era. And I, I don't know how you get beyond that. The other one, of course, is um, W.G. Grace, who by this, people, you know, quite often who don't know a lot about cricket history will say, well, why, why are you going on about W.G. Grace? Because his test average is, is quite ordinary. Of course, by the time he played test cricket, was he late 40s? <laughs> and he wasn't fit. Remember, he was a footballer and a hurdler um, when he was young and a, and a very good hurdler. He was fit when he was young and he doesn't become fit when he's older. So... Um, he was a very good athlete um, and obviously lost that. But there is a year in first-class cricket in England where um, W.G. Grace makes more hundreds um, that year than the rest of English first-class cricket combined. <laughs> he was that much better than everyone else. And if you look through it year after year, again, it's, it's much more like Bradman. Uh, Sid Barnes is probably the bowling equivalent of all of this. But really interesting, if you know, Sid Barnes obviously only bowled against two test uh, nations. He bowled against Australia and South Africa. I think Sid Barnes averages 20 or 21 against Australia. Really, really good. But, you know, um, they were the best team in the world at that stage. And he averages eight against South Africa. And when we're talking about, you know, stat padding and minnow bashing and all that sort of stuff, Sid Barnes was like the king of that. And it's funny how, how rare that is brought up anymore because over time you just look at the overall average right whatever it was 15 or 16 um his overall average um uh, and george loman is the other one who again but he did take a lot of wickets against australia but again i think uh, maybe he had an average of six against south africa or something like that but was i mean that's not to say barnes and loman weren't fantastic um but when you start to look in their numbers it, it does you know it does sort of tell you what you know what was going on in the era of cricket at their time. Whereas when you look at Grace and Bradman, you know uh, Grace 
was batting was you know averaging mid thirties in first class cricket when you know a top order player could average fourteen and get a, have a profession. Um, and Bradman again, even though he played in an era that was much better for batting, you're still talking about Headley, Sutcliffe averaging what sixty, sixty one, sixty two, fantastic players, um, and um, and Bradman averaging ninety nine point nine four against the best team in world cricket, which was England. He averages high eighties. You know, it's it's hard to go against any, all that sort of stuff. Sobers would be a really interesting one if Sobers had not bowled um, spin. If he just bowled seam bowling, I reckon he ends up with an average. He probably takes one hundred eighty wickets, two hundred wickets maybe, um, at a bowling average of probably twenty eight, twenty nine. That's a frontline bowler um, and a frontline and one of the greatest batters who's ever lived. Um, and Callis is obviously the other one there. Uh, and just for fun, because I love mentioning it, you know, there was a period of time where Imran Khan for about a decade averaged over 50 with bat and under 20 with the ball. <laughs> um, but it's hard to go away from, it's hard to go away from Bradman. I want to do a um, system in in the fairly soon where I look at um, the best batters of all time, uh, test batters of all time, um, and sort of rank them from one for fifty. Um, but I'm just trying to get all my metrics together. Um, but you know, chances are, Bradburn will do okay on that. Um, uh, since uh, Keshav says, since the ICC wants to solve Zimbabwe cricket due to government interference, why doesn't the ICC do anything about Pakistan or Sri Lanka? Uh, where high-ranked government ministers, including the Prime Minister, involved? We could add India to that. Um, uh, you know, there's been um, government interference um, in other places as well. Um, you could argue that England has had government interference at times with these um, committees. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yes. Is your, is your answer. Um, look, I think Zimbabwe cricket got to a point where something had to be done. I think Nepal was another one. USA, you kind of, it's kind of ridiculous that, you know, Sri Lanka have their sports minister uh, sign off on their squads um, and no, nothing is ever done about it. And it's not like Sri Lankan cricket has particularly run well <laughs> at all. Um, and, and Zimbabwe didn't do that. I think what Zimbabwe did, specifically was more egregious than anything I've seen from Pakistan or um, or Bangladesh or India or um, Nepal um, and some of, you know some of the other places um, just because and it had been going on for a very long time um, but yes I think your, your general point is right Keshe it's and I've written about it many many times um, <laughs> that there's certainly a double standard when it comes to that and um, honestly I think having followed cricket administration as much as I have, I think there's probably a lot of boards and not just for political interference that probably should have been uh, unrecognized or suspended uh, for many different things that they've done. Um, and, you know, the ones that end up getting done are usually ones who do it over and over again um, in far worse ways. But what you're talking about there is, you know, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, certainly um, those are two that it's hard to overlook what they're doing because they do it quite openly. Uh, Vamshi says, will you go back to Spotify Live? It was nice to talk to you while getting our questions answered. No, I don't think I will, Vamshi, but thank you for all your questions. And the reason really is that the technology wasn't particularly good and it made it much harder on our end to produce the, the show. I would prefer if I could get your voices because um, I like that side of it. Um, but the 
half the time the people trying to ask questions couldn't ask questions on it uh you know trying to record the twitter spaces one doesn't particularly work um so i think you know there's a few different places like the call-in app and eventually youtube will probably have their own version of it um, but at this at this current stage for where we are as a company in 99.94 and where i am as a production team you know with myself and muku and nick it makes and aj who's um probably upset because he's on this call but um it, it's much easier for us to be able to handle um uh, doing it here so we'll be keeping them on youtube uh for a while now uh abraham says in terms of picking on, on basis of potential or or basis of demonstrated ability to get the job done pakistan and australia seem to be opposite ends of the spectrum so australia have actually picked a lot of players based on potential um but that sort of mid 80s through to 90s through to the 2000s was that period where they really pivot to um picking players a little bit more on uh, what they can do like there was an up bit maybe an uproar is wrong but there's a lot of people upset when michael clark sort of was picked from nowhere um firstly from club cricket and then secondly from um, um shield cricket to to the test team um within australia i'm not sure that would have happened decades earlier because I think back in those days, you sort of had the sort of more Neil Harvey type situations happening more regularly. Um, but yes, I think I, I think at the moment, uh, you would have to say that Pakistan and Australia are very, very different in the way that they do it. Weirdly enough, though, I think they're both looking for the same thing. They're both looking for that 10 to 15 year player. It's just Australia is going, okay, well, we can get Scott Boland in for three years here and milk all of his wickets while we find the next Mitchell Johnson or the next Pat Cummins or, you know, the next who, whoever it may be that they're trying to replace. Um, and I think with Pakistan's case, you, you only have to go through, especially with the fast bowlers, some of it's injury, but some of it is just like, they just kind of rotate through people uh, and it's young person. And then it's like first class player who's played a lot of games. Um, it there's, doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to Pakistan's other than the fact that when it's all going wrong, we know they're going to pick another teenager, um, which is probably not ideal. Michelle says, at this point, what is the ranking of the Fab Four? Really interesting because obviously Steve Smith's um, uh, come up from nowhere. Um, Kane's elbow seems better. Virat's found form. Um I really like this question. I'm not sure I have a great answer for you, Vishal. Um, feels like another full-length video I might have to get, might have to, get to. Um, if we are doing in test cricket, it's probably Root, Smith, Williamson, obviously Virat there. Um, yeah. And one day cricket, I feel like I haven't seen enough of them play of recent times. T20 cricket. I mean, Virat was really good. And we haven't seen anything of Root. Yeah, so T20 cricket, I suppose it would be Virat, um, partly just because he plays more of it than the others. But um, certainly Williamson's the other one who plays the most, and he's not particularly. Um, we certainly know as good as Virat, even if Virat's not quite what he once was. Um, so, yeah, I think from uh, – I, I hope that's right. Um, it's also weird, isn't it, because – the fluctuations seem to be coming quite slow for a long time. And then just recently, it feels like, oh, Kane's finished because of his elbow and Smith can't play the ball back back of a length. And, um, you know, and Vera will never make another 100 again. And then it's like, oh, oh all this has changed. Uh, Vinay says, uh, do you edit, animate the videos yourself? Ah, uh, I, 
I don't know. I mean, Muku will maybe write an angry comment here. I don't know what percentage of the videos that I edit compared to what he does. He edits all of the last knocks, or AJ, him and Muku, AJ edits all of the last knocks. Um, but I think it's mostly Muku now. I, if you go back, um, I edit a lot, quite a lot. Am I getting? I just want to see if I got a WhatsApp from Muku just now to complain. Let's see if this is Moku. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I, I do a lot of the more good area videos. Uh, the video um, essays um, uh, usually are done completely by uh, 42's team, um, sometimes by Moku, but sometimes Shubu does them, and Arya's done quite a few there as well. Um, but yeah, the good areas, I would do a big percentage of that. The actual animation of the cricket, we have a guy called Rahul who, who works with 42, who I occasionally get clips off him. Um, but yeah, so from that perspective, I don't do any of that sort of stuff. But a lot of the other little movements and animations uh, I do myself. Um, I actually, one of the few things in life I am semi-trained to do is edit um, video. Um, I started as a film editor. That was probably my first creative um, work before I became a writer. Um, Self-taught mostly, but I did do some, I, I went to film school and then before I went to film school, um, I did some short courses, but I basically trained myself how to to, to edit um, on Final Cut. Um, and so so from that point of view, that sort of, uh, that sort of came from, um, that comes natural to me. Um, I think Muku gets upset sometimes when I edit because he wants to do the the work and <laughs> I've already done it and give him a full video and all his whole job of is just uploading it, which I don't know how to do really. I mean, I'm sure I could learn, but <laughs> I think, I'm not sure Muku's ever let me upload a video. He probably thinks I'd stuff it up. Um, uh, so yeah, so I have I have those skills. Um, obviously, I uh, you know worked in music videos and ads and short films and all those sorts of things before I became a cricket writer. So I you know learnt all those sorts of things. As far as uh, you say, you know what kind of uh, videos inspired you to find this style? Um, I always wanted to make videos that sort of match the way that I wrote, and I didn't know what that meant. And I wasn't a big YouTube user. So for those who don't know, I was on YouTube back in 2007, 2008, putting videos up online. But after that, you know, I ended up editing a magazine that I go to Crick Info. And so I don't really come back to YouTube. So I kind of missed the whole YouTube movement um, uh, within um, sports. Uh, when I was putting videos up on YouTube, you know, we were getting like, some of them would get like half a million views or whatever, but you couldn't monetize it or anything. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And then we, I go off to Crick Info after we create the, the Two Chuck series, which was originally Two Pricks at the Ashes. I knew at that stage that I could use my editing skills, but again, I didn't really realize what we could make. And then when Aria came to me, so Aria runs 42 and Akash's chop, uh, Akash's Chopra, um, we said, Akash's um, channel and, um, you know, quite a few of the other major cricket channels as well. Um, and I trained uh, um, Arya at Crick Info and he kept, he wanted me to do a lot more of this sort of stuff, which is actually, I, I kind of enjoy now, but at the time I didn't really want to do as much as this. And I said, well, I'll do it if we can animate my stuff. And we kind of just found ways of, of doing it using my skills, then Aria's skills, then, you know, um, Muku came on board more full time um, from that perspective. And I'm really interested in filmmaking. And some of it is from YouTube, but some of it is also looking at, you know, what 
what I can do with new tools that are out there. So we had, I think it, we used uh, something called Doodly for a long time, which we don't use much anymore, but we used a lot of Doodly. Uh, there's another program called Cartoonly that we used. Um, we now use a lot more of Canva's animation effects uh, when we can. Uh, you know, Muku's got some special tricks that he has. I've got some special tricks that I have. You know, we, we've now started playing with timelines. If you have a look in the last video, the the review of um, 2022, um, using Flourish as well. So you know, using you know, moving things around the screen, animating it. And we were making short videos, which I sold. I think I sold a bunch to Crick Info uh, when I was freelancing. And then Crick Info wanted short as possible, you know, one and a half minute, two minutes. In fact, eventually, I think they wanted like 30 second videos or something along those lines. And it just bores me to compress content down because it's not the way I write. It's not the way I've worked. I mean, I've been talking to you for one hour and three minutes uh, as if to prove the point there. And so... Um, from from that perspective, I wanted to do something longer, but I didn't really know how to do it. But people kept commenting about this guy called John Boyce. Uh, John Boyce uh, runs a secret base uh, YouTube page. I go over and I have a look at him. But from that, I I learned about the his work was absolutely great, and I think he thinks in a very similar way to me. And we both have rudimentary rudimentary filmmaking skills. Um, that we are very good at doing certain things, uh, maybe not everything, um, but but when it comes to editing and 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 making things up from from that perspective, and I didn't really want to copy his style, but I had these kind of visions, and then I started looking into what video essays were, and I realized that at a certain point they're, they're kind of limitless, and I think I'd always sort of um, uh, I'd always sort of put these natural. Um, uh, handbrake on when I was making those videos. And so suddenly I realized I could kind of make anything. And, you know, there are some, John Boyce is obviously great, but there's a bunch of great music ones, a bunch of great film ones, a bunch of great basketball video essays. Uh, Foolish Baseball was another one that I went and had a look at. But a lot of it was really, I'm already writing this. How do I match visuals to that? Which is the thing I learned from them rather than going, oh, he does this trick and this guy does this trick. It was more along the lines of, I just need to match my writing with my YouTube style. And that's really where that, that that sort of thing has come from. And then Last Knock came after that, really, where we were like, well, wait a minute, not everything I write has that sort of visual element to it, but I still want to tell a story about, you know, Quentin Ducock not kneeling or, um, you know, the reviewing the year in 2022 and that sort of stuff. And so me and Muku and, and I think maybe Ari a little bit as well worked on that sort of stuff. All right, I will have another quick break and then we'll do a bit of a speed round uh through the end um uh, just to see if there's any other cat uh, uh, catches i said any other questions uh that we need to mop up whether it's missing flights or retirements out of the blue whether it's resignations or bans as the old saying goes there's never a quiet day in west indies cricket so make sure you listen to west indies on 99.94 to stay up to date with all the latest fallout with the teams in maroon yeah rahul does incredible animation so when we have the animations of actual cricket uh he does almost all of that um uh from that from that perspective um uh and uh he you know quite often i'll just send him a video of, of a couple of clips and just be like can you put this together um we are you know looking at other ways to be able to do it to be able to do it quicker and everything else I'll trying to do deals with cricket boards as well about using some of their um their footage um and everything else um from that perspective but yeah just trying to be um oh my god 
Now, Muku's just all over this while I look for a couple more questions. But yeah, uh, you know, that's um, that's the right thing that we're being trying to do um, uh, from that perspective is, you know, we're trying to upskill the channel, but we're still obviously very, very, um, uh, what would you say? Um, very, very amateur with the way that we're doing things. So, you know, like I think the last episode, we lost the sound about 83 times. So you get the idea um, how we're going with those things. Danny says, Joffre Archer averaged around 25 with the bat in first class cricket before England, but only averages seven in test cricket. Do you think he'd become a proper number eight and average something similar under baseball? I don't know how much you'd seen him bat. I don't think anyone who'd seen him bat thought he was going to average 25 in uh, test cricket. Um, he can hit occasionally, but I had seen him bat quite a bit. I'd seen a couple of, um, I'd seen him bat for Sussex and I think I'd seen him bat in a couple of T20 games. And... <laughs> I still think he has some natural hitting ability, but um, I he certainly I, I'd be shocked if he was ever a number eight in Test cricket, especially in England number eight, where they seem to uh, go out of their way to make sure that they have some batting talent at number eight. Um, I don't think he is that. I do think if he plays cricket for a long time, there's something there, and he could end up being handier than he is, and maybe even um, quite destructive in T20 cricket as a sort of chaos hitter at times. But yeah, I think uh, that 25 batting average is, uh, was friendly, uh, would be the way that I put it. Also, I think if I remember correctly, and I think I have done this research, it was quite low down the order. So if you're batting, if you want your batting average to stand up, and this is kind of anyone who bats almost number five all the way to number 11 in test cricket, those are really easy runs in first class cricket. And in test cricket, there are very few very easy runs. And so if you've got someone who averages, I don't know, 35 batting at number eight in first class cricket, if you can get them to average 27 or 25 in test cricket, that's a bonus because the runs don't usually transfer over the same way lower down the order as they do up the order. The real king of cricket says, uh, do you think this current Pakistan team is the weakest team in the last 30 or 40 years? I mean, without doing a deep dive analysis, it feels poor. Although they've probably had some worse batting lineups than this. I, I just think it's a bit of a mess. I've, I've talked about it in, in a video. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but on the, you know, the recent, um, you know, levels of Pakistani cricket, um, I just think they're making a lot of mistakes um, at the moment. And they could. I don't think it's the worst talent in 30 or 40 years, although it may be. Um, but I do think that a lot of things have caught up to them as far as other teams are just so much smarter now and Pakistan is still making the same mistake over and over again. 87 says, solely if Australia wanted to simulate Asian conditions, we could create our own pitches with the appropriate sand and clay ratio. Okay, so this is a really interesting one. Uh, you could certainly do that, as you said, in Cairns, Townsville or Darwin. Yes and no. Um, you can certainly bring the the surfaces over and you have the hot conditions. It's the net bowlers, 87, that you don't have. It's the dustiness that you don't get in Australia that you get in those other places. It's the um, it's the um, game situation. Uh, if you're playing, you know, uh, you know, your academy against opposition teams that you don't get. Australian cricketers, you can put them on a spinning pitch anywhere. That's not what you need. You need Asian coaches. You need Asian net bowlers. You need Asian game situations. You need the ball um, to scuff up from the outfields in the same way that it does in Asian conditions as it does in Australia. All of those things you can't really replicate as well. Um, 
I think I've heard someone at Cricket Australia say this before, by the way. And I might have even said it before as well. But when it comes down to it, it's it's really there's a lot more to it than just the pitch. The pitch is like a major part of it, maybe 60 or 70%, but it's all the other part. It's being used to st- um, staying in Asia for long periods of times. Um, it's being able to read Asian pitches from having a look at them. Um, again, uh, not, not knowing what you're going to get as you turn up. It's also the fact that, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the conditions at which you are playing in are, it's not just about one part of it. It's about the entire lived-in experience. So I really think if you want to prepare correctly, that is not the best way of doing it. That is the best way of just making sure that your your spinners are, are, are playing, um, are, are getting good practice on turning wickets, and your batters are getting decent practice on, on turning wickets. And I think this is what you're saying has happened, maybe a smaller version of it before. But... You, you know the the quality of a finger spin in a, in a in a net session in Sri Lanka or Bangladesh is better than you're probably going to get a finger spin in Sheffield Shield cricket. So you can't replicate that. Um, but I don't think people understand that. You know the the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth best finger spinner in some of those places are just fantastic bowlers, um, and that's what you really want them to work be working against as much as anything else. Uh, Playmaster says, when are you going to be up uh, to upload the team map of RCB? Well, uh, I think we're putting them up. We put one up on Wednesday, so there'll be one up on Friday, and then it'll be Monday, Wednesday, Friday next week. And so RCB are doing it in where they came in the, in the table. So where did RCB came? Third or fourth. So they should be up next Wednesday. But if you haven't seen them, uh, you know, I've taken a big look at how the IPL teams played last year, and then I've had a look at who they've either uh, traded for or got in the auction. Um, and uh, we're, we're looking at them in each different part of the game. Uh, sextuplants, sextap maps. I forget what I called it in the video. It was probably funnier in the video. Um, but yeah, we, we've that's basically what we've tried to do there. Uh, and then Connor says, who's Indian hat? Is that in the back? I've got to get my angles right here. I've not, not done that very well. Uh, so that's my Indian hat. Uh, that is Matali Raj's hat. Uh, Shikha Pandey got that for me. Um, I've also got a Shikha Pandey shirt, but um, I've got to get that frame from uh, my daughter. Um, that, yeah, that is, that, the, oh my God, it's pointing is terrible. That's Sachin Tendulkar's shoe. I didn't get that from him. I got that from someone at Adidas. And then I think next to that, oh, you can't see it, but behind the plant is my Scotland hat. And do I have anything else cool? Oh, I've got a stump. Can you see this stump over here? That stump is from the rec ground. Uh, we went there to record something for TalkSport years ago, and there was like a broken Digitel stump. Um, and so I stole that. I think that's all I've stolen. Um, and then, of course, I've got the I've got um, the ball I stole from Andrew Simons, um, signed by him. Um, I think that's my only memorabilia. I'm not really – I kind of like collecting things that mean something to me. Matali Raj was – it's one of the few times I've ever asked anyone for um, a favor like that. I mean, I really asked Shika for her, <laughs> her shirt. Um, and she said, what else do you want? I was like, well, I'd like Matali Raj's hat. Um, I don't really do, take photos with the players or, or keep that much. But, you know, the rec round is something quite special. The, the, the such a shoe is actually my wife's, but we don't really have anywhere to put it downstairs and we never have. Um, uh, but my wife bonded with her father over Sachin Tendulkar, so he's quite a, an important person to her sort of cricket narrative, but 
life narrative, I suppose. And obviously, uh, working with um, Scotland was you know quite a big thing for me. So I, I keep I keep out a few things that I have, um, but I'm not. I, I don't have a huge amount of, of cricket stuff. Um, but I do have. Um, uh, yeah, but but occasionally when I when I see something I like, I like to nick it. Anyway, uh, thank you everyone uh, for your questions. Um, huge work here on the YouTube. So many great questions there. But obviously Patreon, if you guarantee you want your question guaranteed to be answered, uh, join us on Patreon and you can ask the questions beforehand, which in, in theory allows me to get to them and do some research. I did I did some on the Henry Nichols answer and the South African uh, answer. Oh, and I tried to do the top five one. It was just a really hard thing to research in a short period of time. Um, but yeah, huge thanks to everyone from that point of view. Um, there's some really good 99.94 podcasts out at the moment. Um, there is the one of the West Indies uh, looking ahead to what success means um, in the West Indies and a really good one also on South African cricket. Um, and uh, I think I've listened to a couple of Sri Lankan ones that have been really top quality of recent times as well. We're in the middle on, on this channel, we're in the middle of our video series on the IPLs we talked about before, the, the question that um, that Playmaster asked, which is kind of the the, the maps on how teams play um, last year. Uh, so we've done put one of those videos up. Next one will be up tomorrow. Um, and then next week, as I said, the rest of those will come up. I've got a video on Chris Green. Um, I'm trying to do a video on um, South African batting as well. Um, but yeah, lots of stuff to come up at the moment. And, and if you if you do like my stuff, we don't put the double centuries up on this channel. Double century at the moment is just in podcast form, um, but it's a fantastic series. Um, myself and Abhishek Mukherjee um, put it together with and Nick obviously produces it and makes it sound much better than it probably deserves to um it's really one of the it's one of the most fun things eventually we'll work out how to make it into a video series of, of one form or another but uh, you know a uh, huge thanks to everyone who listens to it but if you like the rest of our stuff you'll probably like that stuff i think the last episode was on stanford um and the next episode is on essentially the first person who turned cricket into a franchise game but he did it in like the 1840s um which is really really interesting as well he also uh um set up Trent Bridge um, as a cricket ground. There you go. There's a there's a spoiler um, if you know who I'm talking about. But a uh, huge thanks to everyone for coming on today and if you're listening on the podcast as well for listening there. But I will see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Sports Social Podcast Network.